0: Patrick O'Shaughnessy is a Principal and Portfolio Manager at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Patrick and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. My guest today is Jeff Graham, a Portfolio Manager at Bandera Partners and the author of one of my favorite investing books. Dear Chairman, Boardroom Battles and the Rise of Shareholder Activism. Jeff is also one of the nicest people I've come across in this business. It's been a pleasure getting to know him in recent months. In our conversation, we discuss the history and current state of shareholder activism and how Jeff invests himself, taking large positions and often board seats in undervalued companies. Please enjoy. Okay, Jeff, so I'm going to start with a couple quotes from your book, because I think they are good bookends for understanding this history of activism that you explore. The first one is from Ben Graham, which kicks off the book. Uh, And really, I'm quoting these two passages less for their content and more for their tone, because Mm -hmm. it's changed so much over the years. So Graham was fighting against a company called Northern Pipeline, which I'll let you describe kind of what he was doing in a few minutes. But this is an excerpt from the letter you published in Dear Chairman where he says, "...because of its ownership of the largest interest therein, and because of the prestige represented by its name, the Rockefeller Foundation must be considered to some extent in the ethical position of trustee for the smaller participants." We are hopeful, therefore, that its high-minded and generous solicitude, evident in so many fields, will be manifested to some degree in the foundation's attitude towards its fellow shareholders. It's a very nice professional tone. And then Mm -hmm. we'll fast forward to a later letter in your book written by Dan Loeb uh, to Eric Seven, who was the CEO of StarGas at the time. Lobright, sadly, your ineptitude is not limited to your failure to communicate with bond and unit holders. A review of your record reveals years of value destruction and strategic blunders, which have led us to dub you one of the most dangerous and incompetent executives in America. I was amused to learn in the course of our investigation that at Cornell University, there is an Eric Seven scholarship. One can only pity poor stu- the poor students who suffer the indignity of attaching your name to his academic record. So pretty <laughs> uh, pretty interesting change that we've seen in, you know, eight or nine decades in activism. Um, so what I'd love to start by doing is really highlighting the major stages that you lay out in your book, sure. maybe starting with what Graham was fighting and, and what he was doing and how he was a pioneer of activism. Sure.
1: Well, with Ben Graham, uh, he kind of existed in a different era, right? So like when he was... A shareholder in the Northern Pipeline Company was the mid 1920s, and you know most of the smaller public companies had big, uh, concentrated owners, and so he had to appeal to the Rockefeller Foundation, who was a 30% holder, to win their vote. And you don't do it like by you know, we're calling them a crazy person and you know, we're pulling a Dan Loeb on them. But obviously, I mean, just you know, the kind of Like the times were very different. I mean, it was interesting, like to read, like the company's responses to Ben Graham. Like, like I don't think I put them in the book, but they were very civilized. Um, But you know, with Ben Graham, like the era was very different. By the time that we got to the like like the 1950s and the proxy tears, which was the next chapter, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like you had seen this um, this big diffusion in like in stock um, ownership in the country. And the proxy fight in the 1950s that I highlight, which is uh, the Robert Young against the New York Central, it was like a political campaign because you're like appealing to these individual uh, shareholders, like, and that's kind of the key uh, movement in the book. Like, it really is a history of how uh, you know passive uh, share um, ownership evolved. So, so like a lot of the changes of activism and the changes in the dynamics of these uh, campaigns has to do with the changes in the underlying shareholders.
0: Can you describe kind of how that happened? So, you know, you mentioned that early on there were huge holders like, say, a Rockefeller Foundation, mm-hmm. um, and, and that became much more widely distributed. Can yeah. you kind of describe what precipitated that change?
1: Sure. I mean, like, it kind of, like, um, historically, like, it's a lot about, like, the history of American uh, capitalism. I mean, in the early days, like, the capitalists were you know, like would be, you know, big strategic investors, or sometimes even bankers, but like you kind of, um, a great example for this is a General Motors. So in the 1920s, a GM had a big ownership from DuPont, but also, you know, when they made all of their acquisitions, they did it with stock. And so like you had like, like a lot of these, you know, um, owner capitalists as Peter Drucker called them, you know. And uh, what happened ultimately is between the 20s and the 50s, a lot of those, you know, what kind of older capitalists, uh, died and passed away. And these, you know, big uh, concentrated uh, stakes in public companies got, um, you know, like essentially distributed and diffused out to individual shareholders. And, and in the 1950s, there was even a movement by, by the markets, by, like, the New York Stock Exchange uh, to advocate for this, like, you know, a populist movement of, like, this is the people's market and, like, you know, you need to own your share. So it was both, like, the passing away of the old concentrated owners and a public interest in owning shares, like, that that drove that big diffusion. And it really didn't last long. Like, you had the 1950s when, like, you had this, you know, very diffuse ownership. And beginning in the 1960s and... The late 50s, even, you saw this uh, reconcentration into the mutual fund industry, uh, the big pension plans, you know, institutional investors as we know them now. So it was a quick flash. <laughs>
0: so let's back up for a minute and we'll come back to the proxy tier movement because I, I also felt that that was kind of the most interesting turning point both for the idea of shareholder value, but also for the activist movement, more broadly speaking. So going back to Ben Graham, though, obviously what activists want to do is earn a great return. Mm -hmm. And Graham's story was so interesting because Northern Pipeline, which I think you mentioned in the book, was trading at $65 or whatever it is, um had 90 dollars of what it, what he called gilt edge securities just yeah. sitting there earning yeah, but basically cash right, right basically earning nothing um, and and back then companies were required to publish much less information so this wasn't mm-hmm. readily available knowledge um, and sort of the ultimate gold mine that that Graham found, I think, through um, the ICC or some some commission that that Northern <laughs> Pipeline was required to report to. Um, so he basically found a gold mine sitting underneath this company where the cash was worth a lot more than the shares. And his effort was ultimately to release that shareholder value, if you will, get that cash into the hands of the actual shareholders who could earn a much higher return than Pipeline was earning yeah. on that cash.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, it's a great example because it is, I mean, ultimately, If you're trying to kind of explain to your readers about the value of a company, it's a lot easier if just there's a huge pile of cash there, like, to fight over. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating uh, story. Like, uh, basically, uh, the government collected a lot of information on the railroads, you know, so – uh, the public could go look up these uh, reports, um, ICC reports, on the financial s- uh, state of all the railroads. And a lot of uh, financial analysts uh, did that. And so uh, Ben Graham was uh, looking through the annual report of the ICC, and he sees, uh, kind of in the footnotes, a table on the pipeline companies. You know, there were eight public pipeline companies that had been uh, formed when uh, uh, Standard Oil was broken apart. And he like he sees that he's like, wait, I didn't uh, know that the pipeline companies reported to the ICC. If they do, then they might like report well, more than just the basic statistics on this uh, table. So he takes the train down to DC and and he asks them, like, do you have any reports on the pipeline companies? And they bring out these full twenty-page uh, reports. Um, I have the one for Northern Pipeline, and um, I got it, you know, from the National Archives, and it's got like a like a full balance sheet, like a list of shareholders, all the kind of things that back then were very hard to get. Mm. And he sees, you know, well, not only the size of their balance of uh, valuable bonds, but like the names of the bonds. And like, he's like, well, these are, you know, these are money, good bonds. Mm. So it was then that he knew that like the company was essentially like if you liquidated just like their financial holdings and kept the business whole, like it would be a bonanza for shareholders.
0: Sort of like the perfect example against market efficiency back then. Pretty amazing that yeah. that nobody else knew that information.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is like, you know, just the fact that you had to do hard work, um, even after, you
0: know... Probably still true like, today.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, even after, like, the formation of the SEC, like, you still had to go to the SEC reading room to get your reports, you know, so, like, even in the 50s and, and the 60s, like a lot of public information about uh, public companies was hard to come by, which made the market less efficient.
0: Sure. So, so what is the transition from Graham to these proxy tiers? Because I think that that movement probably sets the stage for the rest of activist history.
1: Yeah. I mean, the proxy tier movement is a pretty fascinating uh, movement because it really was the beginning of this uh, pro shareholder populism. And, you know, people talk about, that beginning in the '80s or the '90s, and that, like the corporate uh, raiders and the shareholder activists and and Boone Pickens were the first guys that talked about the shareholders' rights, but that's not true. I mean, like you had this whole, a public, a movement that got a lot of press attention, of these guys like you know Lewis Wolfson, uh, you know Robert Young that were in Time Magazine and on TV talking about how how public companies, you know, needed to, to protect their shareholders. And they said, look, there's this whole campaign by the New York Stock Exchange, like this own your share in American business. And that if you buy shares, like that we're partners. And if we're really partners, then, you know, we deserve, you know, like our rights, like to vote in a new board if we want to. And so they really began to flex, you know, that a uh, muscle that had not you know, I mean, like the Ben Graham thing with Northern Pipeline, that was very under the radar. Um, that was not in the newspaper. Like when I did a search of the Wall Street Journal archive, that like was not even in there. Mm. Like these things in the 1950s were front page news. And so that was like the real beginning of this kind of, you know, pro-shareholder populism.
0: How much of that was was kind of all talk for them trying to earn a buck for themselves or their investors? And how much of it was, was real reform?
1: I mean, I'm always of the opinion that, you know, well people are like our self interested animals and so as far as they were concerned, I mean I think it was all kind of well posturing to make well profits for themselves and but I think a lot of what they said was right, and I'm sure that they believed it. Mm. So I mean I guess a combination of both, but ultimately I think you know, those guys were all out to make a buck.
0: So so Peter Drucker says that Kind of through this era, we're the first truly socialist country because we're the first where this ownership of American business is so widespread. So you get from that, and then what's the next stage? Sort of, I think about it as you know the junk bond era, uh, the Mm -hmm. corporate raiding era, especially of the 1980s. Would you say that's the next kind of major chapter in the history of activism? No, because
1: I think that you can't ignore. Well, there are two things that you can't ignore. Like you can't like ignore the conglomerators, Mm. right? So that was this big M and A movement that did have some elements of hostile M&A. Like, like they had, like, hostile, you know, tender offers. You know, those were smaller companies in general, but it was, you know, I mean, that sowed the seeds for the hostile, like, the hostile takeovers that began in the 70s. And then, I mean, like, I couldn't leave it out of my book. Like, you have to to talk about the, like, emergence of uh, of Warren Buffett, too, Mm -hmm. which, like, his career began in the mid-1950s. And, you know, the 60s were... Pretty grand time for him, too, I think. So,
0: So when we get to the 1980s and some of the more famous activists that people now still are talking about today, Carl Mm -hmm. Icahn, etc., what changes? Uh, Because there seems to be a self interest driving their actions kind of above all else. And a lot of change in terms of how companies start to protect themselves from these raiders, who don't seem to be acting on behalf of broad shareholders, but to make you know as as quick a buck and as big a buck as possible.
1: Yeah, I mean it's an interesting question, and I mean it's always you know fascinating, like with you know with any kind of historical exploration, because there is you know like your prejudices and how you think the world works, like the lens through which you see the world, has a huge influence on like on how you interpret these past events so this emergence in the 1980s of the corporate raiders like a lot of people are like oh this was the beginning of the birth of greed and like these guys are greedy now where before that it was a business was you know more honorable and and i kind of don't buy that at all i think in the 50s and the 60s you had a lot of greedy guys and this and you did in the 70s too they just got all washed away (laughs) but um i think in the 80s To me, the defining uh, thing was, you know, Michael Milken and this vast infusion of capital that he gave directly to the Raiders. And so, you know, guys who like were small fry in the 50s and the 60s or the 70s, um, you know, those kinds of outsider um, um, investors would now have access to huge uh, sums of capital. And so in my book, I profile uh, Carl Icahn versus uh, Phillips, and you know Phillips was like a top a uh, twenty company in the country. It was, I forget, you know, ten billion dollars or something. It was a huge company, and you have a uh, Carl Icahn, you know, going after it. I mean, he doesn't have the money, and he's not financed by the big banks or like investment banks. He's like financed by by these, you know, like the cronies of of Michael Milken and like the people that buy those junk bonds. And so like, like he got to do this whole thing of going after a huge established a company, like without any help from the kind of the financial establishment.
0: What was he trying to do with Phillips? What was his specific mission?
1: He was out to make a buck. Yeah. (laughs) So with Phillips, (laughs) you know, they like had been targeted by Boone Pickens and, um, you know, Boone Pickens. It's actually a great story, which which I put in the book too. It's like he actually, like his father worked for Phillips, and he worked for Phillips, and he had a long history with the company. And he goes after them as a hostile raider, and they basically buy him out. Now, Boone Pickens was, you know, well very uh, um, uh, sensitive to charges of greenmail, and so he was like, "Well, you can buy me out, but like you have to do it has to be equal treatment to all shareholders." And so instead of just paying Pickens a lot of money to go away. Uh, Phillips had to devise this uh, scheme to pay out uh, Pickens, but to also do right by shareholders. And they give, like, the shareholders this, you know, complicated restructuring that the market ultimately v- uh, values for less than the cash that is paid to Boone Pickens. Mm. And so, Icon uh, sees that he sees I can go after Phillips. Pickens is a smart guy and he knows the space and he clearly thinks it's undervalued, but what he's also going for is, you know, if he buys into the public shares, he thinks that they need to sweeten their offer, you know, and so he succeeds in doing that. Like He makes a big fuss and Phillips uh, sweetens the recapitalization. So his shares go up.
0: It's an interesting uh, example of making a quick buck. I remember in the, or at least I've heard the story where my mom would wear a shirt called people before profits in the, in the mm-hmm. late seventies, early eighties, which uh, has a better ring to it than stakeholders before shareholders. <laughs> but that's kind of what's going on here is, you know, you put in your book a couple of the example that stands out to me was I don't know who it was, but somebody um, took over Pacific Lumber, which mm-hmm. was, had a sustainable kind of growing plan for timber. Um, basically, fired everyone, canceled that sustainable plan, clear cut a bunch of old growth redwoods um, to make you know the quickest of profits.
1: Yeah, uh, Charlie Hurwitz. It was a it was a gruesome case.
0: And like- I wonder I wonder um, you know was it through the '80s and obviously the the junk bond era came to came to an end ultimately. Was it public reaction to things like that, to, you know, things like ICANN making a tremendous amount of money very quickly, uh, really to the benefit of nobody else but him? Um, Did that change things? Was was the attitude towards activism um, or even the strategy of activists changed after that era?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And, like, in a weird way, our society both, like, detested those people, but also hold them up for our admiration. So like I was too young at the time like to really process it all obviously, but I I don't really know the answer in terms of uh, public opinion. I do think that you did have a few specific uh, policy initiatives and you had the end of Michael Milken, right. which, you know, uh, kind of uh, put an end to the rating in the 80s as we know it. Like, you know, like the 90s was a bigger deal decade than the '80s was. There were lots of huge mergers in the '90s, like uh, some big hostile deals. But like this period where you could basically be a nobody, and if you found like an like an undervalued uh, company, get quick uh, funding, like to go after it in an aggressive manner. You know that's over, and it hasn't come back. It didn't even come back in in the early 2000s when you had this like ample supplies of capital out there like it's a funny thing i talk about like in my book that like you know that was like the only time in history where like you know they just like allowed people with no experience like at all like to go on a spending spree and then i had in my footnotes like except for well maybe like the icelandic investment banks right in the mid-2000s which was like a little bit of a similar thing
0: so ICANN had this, this idea, this, I think you call it anti-Darwinian idea mm-hmm. of kind of corporate management that for the most part, it was dominated by really good institutional politicians, mm-hmm. uh, people who are good at rising the ladder, but not necessarily at either managing the company or allocating capital. Um, and you've got this sort of Peter principle that people rise to the level of their incompetence and... And that creates the opportunity for a lot of these activists to go out and and shape companies up. Obviously, I think that has persisted, right? That Mm -hmm. the the world is still full of, especially maybe in what you call the wasteland of small cap, uh, the small cap market, still full of companies that are, are badly or even horribly mismanaged. But given the end of the kind of I can, you know, milk and junk bond era, obviously activists are still targeting companies like that. Um. So maybe kind of close this history off for us through the 90s and then, you know, the 2000s to the present of, of what it's looked like since then.
1: Well, I mean, I think, like, that since then uh, you've seen this, you know, continued concentration of share ownership in the institutions. Like, you did uh, see this uh, brief period that I talk about in the book of kind of the Dan Loeb, you know, public um, hedge fund letters, like the shame-driven activism – you know, but that didn't really last long because the way that it's evolved is that, you know, there like in any given public company, if it's not controlled by you know, by insiders, there tend to be a handful of institutions that like that have a lot of the votes. And so the game of shareholder activism is a lot more a game of persuasion now. And so you as an activist are trying to convince the institutional shareholders that you have the right ideas and like perhaps that like the current, um, management doesn't. So in the eighties, you could go for the quick takeover. Um, in the nineties, you kind of, if you were a young activist with no access to capital, like you, well, lots of them did this, like embarrass the company thing was all they could, you know, really think of, you know, by now, like a lot of it is like behind the scenes, like persuasion. Hmm. And as a result, the big institutions are the arbiters in a lot of these disputes. And you have these uh, funds, like uh, people like Value Act or, you know, uh, Bill Ackman even, like they're very uh, politically astute in some ways and persuasive. And they tell a very good story. So
0: there's this this persuasion that's happening. So I'm I'm a quantitative investor, but I'm always very curious to see who are the major shareholders of some of the key businesses that we own. Um, and one of the things you have to do is scroll down a little bit on the page every time on the 13Fs because 1, 2, and 3 is Vanguard, <laughs> yeah, like State Street, Vanguard, BlackRock, yeah. Dimensional, you know, a couple really concentrated, massive asset players that are, that are either purely passive or, you know, quant-light. I'll, I'll call yeah. them like a Dimensional.
1: But you'd be surprised. I mean, if you look at Vanguard, I mean, it's just like an index. I don't know if you'd call that... Yeah, well, whatever. Like, you know, whatever Vanguard is, they're passive investors in the sense that, like, they put together these, well, products like to match an index, but they have a pretty robust team to study governance issues and to vote shares. And so even, like, a lot of these big institutions that they're not actively choosing to buy X or Y stock because of how they think it's going to do, they are active participants in its governance. And so those are the kind of people that you need to to persuade.
0: It's kind of fascinating. It's almost like we're witnessing, and I'm sure this will continue, you know, Vanguard captures market share every day, an inversion of these ideas of passive and active, where active for the longest time has, has been active selection, meaning you're picking stocks, trying to beat the market, and, and probably less so than being involved in those stocks. It's passive owner, active selection, passive ownership. I'll call it. Yeah. And now it's the opposite. It's passive selection, and it sounds like with teams at Vanguard, and, and probably this will happen in other places, active involvement in the management of the company. Yeah, um, I mean, like if you're a
1: Vanguard, then like you are so established, right, that your long-term interests are a that the S and P five hundred is well managed, B, that the markets have integrity. Like you want for people to trust in the s p five hundred like and see like that corporations have integrity. and so like they do have a real vested interest in promoting good governance. Can they do it? Like you know, can you build an incentive system that makes sense? it's a it's a weird dynamic when you have like this entity with you know twenty two paid professionals who have this huge impact. I mean, like how much are those people getting paid? Mm. Probably not that and much. How and How's their performance measured? Yeah, well, and it's, it's extremely hard to measure it, right? So it is a weird dynamic, and yeah, if if you think about it too hard, it's
0: talk it's, yourself in circles. It's a little bit
1: uncomfortable. Yeah, to think about. Wow. So you know what's going to happen when Vanguard owns ten percent of the market? Mm. Um, you know, how persuadable are the people who vote their proxies? They're going to be to to bad ideas. You know, I mean, you know, power intoxicates. That's you know, that's a lesson from history, right? Yeah. So, it like it'll be fascinating to see and the whole growth in passive and passive an ETF investing. I don't know about ETFs that could be a flash in the pan, but you know, indexing is is going to keep growing. So that dynamic is only going to be stronger.
0: So we've got kind of the complete history now where we start with Graham operating very much under the radar with information that nobody else has to unlock value in one very small specific company to uh, almost activists as marketers. Yeah. <laughs> um, that they, they're, they're persuasion experts and, and trying to convince – I guess we'll call them passive um, or big institutional owners – to vote a certain way uh, or to promote a certain kind of governance. So for me, that raises the question, which I think is fascinating, of the very idea of shareholder value. Um, yeah. You talk about this quite a bit in the book. And, um, you know, unless you really dig into the, the history of this idea, you probably just take it for granted that U.S. companies or companies in general should act um, in a way that is best for their shareholders. Mm-hmm. And I guess what that means is the most cash going back to their shareholders, the greatest, uh, you know, growth of share price, um, so on and so forth. But when you dig in, as you do in the book, you realize that that is kind of a, not only a fairly recent concept, yeah. uh, but also potentially a fictional one. So I'm going to read a quote from, um, you don't actually quote this in the book, but I went and read a book Uh, That you recommended or at least referenced by a woman named Lynn Stout talking, I think the book was called The Shareholder Value Myth. Mm -hmm. And so she says, shareholder primacy had become a dogma, a belief system that was rarely questioned, seldom explicitly justified, and had become so pervasive that many of its followers could not even recall where or how they had first learned of it. Put bluntly, conventional shareholder value thinking is a mistake for most firms and a big mistake at that. Shareholder value thinking causes corporate managers to focus myopically on short-term earnings reports at the expense of long-term performance, discourages investment and innovation, harms employees, customers, communities, and causes companies to indulge in reckless, socially irresponsible behaviors. Now, that's obviously a probably an mm-hmm. extreme opinion if there's some continuum of opinion on on the idea of shareholder value she's obviously very much against it mm-hmm. um so the question is 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 it re- is it is this the right way to think about it of stakeholders let's say stakeholders that mm-hmm. includes employees and customers and society at large the environment what have you versus just pure equity shareholders yeah um where do you fall on that continuum what what should companies be you know optimized to, to, yeah. to, to do well
1: you know that's that's a key question and and I really do think that's a good book by Lynn Stout. It's like a really thought-provoking book. And she definitely, I mean, like she kind of has two arguments. There's the legal argument of like, look, there's like no legal reason like the corporations are required to prioritize the shareholders, um, which is true uh, technically, but then there's like the practical thing of like, well, except like they're not well forced to, but a board of directors is appointed by shareholders and so – like that will bias is always going to be there because um, you have to raise your capital from somewhere. Mm. But then like she also gets into the practical argument of, of, you know, what companies that like are run specifically for shareholder value can be a myopic, like can be short term oriented. Like we have to be careful there because it's easy to kind of slip into kind of a semantic argument. Cause I think, you know, when some people say shareholder value, or people are focused on shareholder value. They don't, like, like we're not all talking about the the same thing. And I think, like, for someone like me, I'm, I mean, obviously, I guess not obviously, but if you have read my book, I think that you see that, like, I'm pretty much pro, you know, shareholder and, like, in terms of corporate governance. And I think that a board of directors, I think their job is to protect the long-term interests of the shareholders. And I think if a board is beholden to too many bosses, it's easy for them to be beholden to nobody. And so, like, I do think it's important to run companies for the benefit of shareholders. But I think the way this, like, devolves in, like into semantics at times is, like, look, I mean, people in our uh, shoes inherently understand that it's not, in the long term interest of shareholders to kind of denude the environment and to exploit the labor you know to the point that like we don't get good uh, service to neglect our like our customers to the point that we lose them and like a lot of the debate like in a weird way like it's about you know that happening and to me that's will bad long term governance and and I do think that the whole long-term short-term issue is a human nature issue like i think boards can be too short-term oriented shareholders can be short-term oriented but so can managers and you know so can ceos and and so that's a problem like uh, for all of us and like i haven't seen lots of compelling evidence that like oh well public company shareholders are just well so myopic and like they're well so short-term focused that it's like, destructive to the economy. Like, I think there's a lot of examples where, like, if you look at a company like Amazon, you know, where they are investing all of their excess cash into long-term growth. Like, they're doing everything, like, for their long-term benefit. You know, well, possibly for the negative benefit of society, but, you know, well, for their long-term benefit and for their customers' benefit and for their shareholders' benefit. And so, like, I'm not... Like that compelled, you know, by the argument that, oh, like we live in a world like you know, where shareholders are just like completely short sighted, rampaging, like, you know, like and misinformed, you know.
0: Alfred Rappaport, who's written a number of books on this topic, says that managers talk shareholder value but then walk quarterly earnings. Mm-hmm. And obviously Bezos is maybe the perfect example of the opposite of that. One of these kind of rare, truly long term thinkers that really does seem to walk that walk. But I guess the problem is balance, right? That for every Bezos, there could be 50 or 100 much more myopic managers that yeah. are focused on hitting performance targets. Because let's face it, the average CEO tenure these days in you know the Fortune 500 is something like six years. <laughs> so I wonder, coming back to the idea of stakeholder versus shareholder value, if the idea of shareholder value has become so popular and so commonly accepted, because it's very measurable, Share mm-hmm. prices, share price, earnings are earnings. Um, you know, you can you can really track those things and mm-hmm. and say whether or not a company is being effective for its shareholders. We live in this kind of age of measurables where we're obsessed with t-stats and r-squareds and yeah. and statistics. It's much softer and fuzzier once you start getting into stakeholders. Um, and so I wonder. I guess my question is: Is there some set of measurables, or at least some? Governing objective that companies could start to bake into their the the, kind of the essence of their businesses because as you say there's no if you go read companies kind of founding papers none of them say our mission is to maximize shareholder value they don't want to tie themselves to that so is there can we get out of this bind can we move past kind of the simple pure measurable of share price um, to something that better promotes stakeholder um, value or do we just need to you know let things play out as they have.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, A, that we basically can't, but B, I mean, I would even question your premise about the value of the measurable of the share price, because, you know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, the markets, like, are not efficient. They certainly are not efficient in the short term. So even, like, evaluating uh, CEOs on the performance of their stock, you know, during their tenure, is very problematic, and you know, like to me, that's like a like a big concern that I have with uh, share-based compensation, right? Like I'm a, a value hedge fund manager. All of us, like for years, have kind of talked about the importance of incentivizing the management in the right way, and we're, we're making sure they have like the skin in the game, all that stuff. But like to me, us a, a stock options are highly problematic because. A, they're highly leveraged, and then B, they're levered to an irrational market, and so you ultimately introduce this big hunk of compensation that's completely erratic. And like, you'll have a companies, you know, where like, you know, will everyone will get a huge pay year just because of the movement of the stock, which will may or may not be warranted. And in a year that they're doing all the right things and they make all the right decisions, they might not get rewarded. So, I think it's. You know, we're well, really problematic, and I think again, it's like among the many things in governance that boils down to the value of an effective board of directors. Because ultimately, the board has to evaluate the CEO, and they shouldn't just do it on the short-term share price movements. Like so, they need to understand that you know, well, markets can get suckered into overvaluing companies, so.
0: Do you think that governance today, and I guess this is another way of asking whether or not the opportunity set for activists, uh, how that stacks up today versus the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I guess one proxy for the opportunity set is how good is governance. The worse the governance, probably the better the opportunity set. So where do you think we stand today?
1: I mean, I would kind of question the premise because I think like there's a lot of bad governance and there always has been and there always will be. But in terms of an opportunity uh, set for activism, I think you really also need like a deeply undervalued company because mm. of the work involved, the possibility of failure. When you go active on a company, you lose your liquidity. So I think the governance opportunities are there. Valuations are higher. Like we're at, like in the middle of this, or at the tail end, or mm. like who knows? I right. mean, you know, who knows where we are in this historically long bull market? So. Like to me, the real uh, you know gating uh, factor on activist opportunity is undervalued uh, hmm. companies, and and I'm not you know well, seeing them as much. Like I think if you're uh, like an activist and like your only target is well bad governance, then I think that's a dangerous well situation to
0: be in. Very interesting. So I would love to move now into kind of your history and sure. your professional yeah. career outside of the book and outside of activism. I know you started in music. Maybe talk a little sure. bit about that.
1: Yeah, well, um, I played in a highly mediocre band. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, pretty much through college, we uh, started at the beginning of like my sophomore year of college. And so that was 1994 or 95, And um, it's a band called Aiden. We were on uh, Team Beat Records, which is a a D.C.-based indie label. And we had uh, four records. And we pretty much toured from 96 until 2001 when I went to business school. So for those years, like I lived in in Chicago for one of those years, but then I moved back to D.C. So like I lived some in D.C. and some in uh, the near D.C. suburbs. And I pretty much attempt and toured mm-hmm. <laughs> um but it was i mean it was a great it was a really um educational lifestyle i think and i really think that going on tour is a a pretty incredible life experience oh, sure but it was like it was hard i mean like it's funny when like when i moved to new york um like i came here for for business school like i realized that all of my friends in bands in like in new york had like real jobs like they had well jobs that, like, would tolerate their artistic ventures. And so they all had careers going, uh, whereas everyone in D.C. and most everywhere else in the country, if you played in a band, you were a bartender or a temp or, like, you did this, you know, well, hourly work. So, like, it was hard. I Like, I do feel like I kind of had this great life experience, which was incredibly valuable, but I didn't, like like, accomplish a lot, like,
0: professionally in that time. I find that most people that have a, a story like yours, you know, ultimately a very successful one, have some sort of threshold crossing moment. So <laughs> going from that lifestyle to Columbia yeah. uh, to business school seems like an odd transition. How how did that come about?
1: I think ultimately I knew at, at some point that I would go back to school and do, you know, well, some kind of, I don't know what you would call it, uh, you know, career advancement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, like the band was, was really fun, but like we never were... A, good enough, but, like, we never, I mean, like, you really have to work hard and, like, to make it work. And, you know, there were, uh, seeing the bands that that became successful in the time, like, that we were doing it, um, the ones that succeeded, pretty much 100% of them were incredibly hard workers. And and all of the the band members were completely committed to it. And we could never really do that. Like, you know, like, we were never all on the same page. Like, we, you know, didn't tour nearly as much as, like, as we could have and, you know, and should have. So I think that deep down I knew that, like, it, you know, like, we weren't going to be a successful band. So, I mean, I didn't really know what to do. And um, and I thought about, like, do I want to learn to be a computer programmer or do I want to go to some kind of a professional school? And um, I had... A family friend, um, Arthur Levitt, hmm. who was uh, uh, Clinton's SEC chairman, who who basically um, helped me get into business school. So, like, I thought of business school at the time as like a like a versatile degree that you could potentially do a lot with. And I think it all, you know, like I got real lucky. Like like it worked out very well for me.
0: So you went to Columbia, and I, I know you now teach there, and that's mm-hmm. sort of probably the school um, if you talk about. What school has produced the most maybe famous investors? Period, but certainly the most famous value investors. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Graham and, and Buffett being the kind of founding fathers, but tons of, of huge names. Joel Greenblatt, um, I think Gabelli went there. I think uh, Cooperman went there. Some mm-hmm. some really big names. So I'm curious, when you got to Columbia, it sounds like your your idea was that a business degree can be broadly. Uh, yeah I mean
1: I didn't know what I was gonna do probably like I got strong I mean so when I got there like I didn't know anything about investing I had never heard of Warren Buffett I mean I didn't you know know that stuff and Columbia was it was pretty different like we didn't have that that value investing you know program that we have now um, and I love that program but I think one downside of that program is it restricts a lot of the best uh, teachers to this a selective uh, program that is hard to get into. So like when I was there, I, I mean, I must've heard at some point like, oh, you know, you should take security analysis. It's a, it's a popular class. So like there were three sections and the one that fit my schedule was the Joel Greenblatt one. And like, it really, I was that lucky. I mean, I took it and um, it resonated with me, but I had no master plan to do investing. Like I didn't even really know what investing was about. Mm. So I took that like that class, and it really clicked. And, and yeah, I mean, and at that time I didn't uh, know about uh, Columbia's history with investing. I think the spring of my first year there, I had a person in my little like what's called an, an IP group, but it was like a like a four person uh, study group who was like into Warren Buffett, and, and like he, like he gave me a book on Buffett. I think that he gave me the Lowenstein book. Hmm. which I didn't read but then I read The Warren Buffett Way and then I read the like the Lowenstein book. And so yeah, you know, once I like I got into it, like I got uh, super focused on it.
0: How was the green black class structured? Was it was it investment case studies? Was it broad principles?
1: I mean, it was a lot about the secret um hiding places in his book. But yeah, it was uh, basically 12 classes like in the first class he um, I remember, like, he kind of uh, focused on, you know, debunking efficient markets. He, well, brought the Wall Street Journal out, and, like, we looked at the 52-week highs and the 52-week lows of these well, companies like American Express and Walmart. And then usually he would have, in the first three or four weeks, like, case studies. And, like, like and he would have these, like, very uh, simple, uh, special situations. So we looked at uh, the Dunn and Bradstreet uh, spinoff. Like, we looked at uh, a where, like you kind of, it was like, like they had a particular line of business that was very profitable, but everything else, you know, well drained all the profits, but, but those could be cut away. And then by the end of the class, um, he began to have a lot of guest speakers and we just would do more, uh, stock pitching. Hmm. So like we would get in our little groups and pitch uh, stocks. So to me, it was more the beginning of the class. I had like had never heard of this, you know, well, special situation stuff. And, like, it really uh, clicked with me. And, 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 like, at the time, like and, and I don't know, like, to what extent this is uh, delusional, but at the time, I felt like I was getting it, well, faster than, like, than everyone else in the mm-hmm. class. That, like, he would go through an example and, like, and I would get it, we'll, you know, we will raise my hand, like, and get it first. Like, perhaps everyone will knew the answer but didn't want to raise their hand or whatever. But I just, well, felt like like I kind of had a knack for it.
0: Tell me how you got back into teaching there.
1: So a friend of mine who I met in that class, um, Eddie Ramsden, who's who's a fund manager, um, he runs a fund called Caburn Capital, uh, which I invest in actually. It's a great fund. He was like a superstar student. Like he got uh, seated by Greenblatt after that class, and he also took. So to back up a bit, like the one, I, I think there were two classes there. In investing, that you had to apply for that, like, were like the new model at the investing school. There was this uh, Paul Sonkin class, and then a class uh, taught by the Blue Ridge guys. I applied to both those classes and got rejected. Eddie took them both. He took the Sonkin class and did so well, like, that he got asked to be, be like the co-teacher the next year. And then the next year, I think uh, Sonkin had to back out of it. And so, um, Eddie, a, a one year removed uh, from, like, from being in the school was the Pretty teacher cool. and he, like, and he did a great job. He's, he's a really good teacher. So when, so he moved back to, uh, to England, like he teaches at the London business school now. And when he moved, he kind of uh, put my name forward, like for doing it. Um, I stutter and it's gotten a lot better, but I had a really bad stutter in college and after college and yeah, I mean, even at Columbia, like, um, I had a, you know, like a pretty bad stutter. So when I got asked to do it, I mean, this is not what I told, you know, Greenwald when, you know, when we were talking about (laughs) it. But, but I kind of uh, viewed it as if I'm not going to do this, then like I'm never going to do something like this. And it was like my chance to kind of try. Like, I mean, I basically did it as a form of uh, speech therapy. Wow. And so that was, you know, kind of the reason I did it. It, Like it was a little bit like I got this opportunity for my entire life I would have, you know, we'll said no to something like this. And it was just, it was like eight months away. It was well just abstract enough that yeah. I was like, screw it. I'm going to try this. And I did it. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I think this will be my fifth or sixth year uh, teaching there.
0: Wow. What a, what, a, what a neat story. I didn't know that, uh, that origin. So, where we'll go next is is your actual portfolio so there's okay. no there's no more i guess interesting way to really see what you believe than to look at what you own and one of the things I'm most fascinated with as a as an active manager myself mm-hmm. is the institutionalization of asset management, the rise of We'll call it closet indexing, um, mm-hmm. where portfolios look more and more like the market, or at least more and more sensitive to key risk exposures relative to the market, because the fastest way to get fired, and I can I can attest to this, um, running portfolios that look a bit different from the market, is to underperform. Even mm-hmm. if that underperformance is over a very short window of time and nothing's changed about the strategy or the philosophy, um, there is a, sh- I think, shorter and shorter leash for doing badly versus, you know, very low-cost passive alternatives. And so I, I got a, a nice big smile on my face when I looked <laughs> up um, kind of your top holdings because, <laughs> because it's there, a there's no portfolio. mistaking <laughs> you there's no mistaking you for a closet indexer. Um, and you had a good line which where you said, value investors are journalists at heart who feel compelled to gather their own facts and do their own analysis, um, which I think obviously needs to be the case for the kind of portfolio you have. So what we'll do is maybe walk through a few examples, kind of think about mm-hmm. them like case studies and and maybe um, use them as jump-off points for for asking a few kind of broader sure. questions about yeah. investing. Um, so the three we're going to go through are StarGas, Popeyes, and Tandy Leather. Okay. Um, so we'll start with StarGas, which was – it's, I think, if I'm not mistaken, at least in the last filing, it was about a quarter of your overall portfolio. I think
1: it's like 21%. Okay. So yeah.
0: it's still the number one holding. Yeah. Um, you know,
1: so like with 13Fs, obviously – they don't include cash, mm-hmm. they don't include like unlisted stocks or right. well, foreign stocks. So like it's not the whole picture, right? But yeah, uh, StarGas is our largest position.
0: So I, I was interested to see that because obviously that was one of the one of the uh, topics or chapters in your in book, book was Dan Loeb versus StarGas. And yeah.
1: that, I mean it's not a coincidence, right? Like when you're writing a book, you definitely hop at an opportunity to take a shortcut yep. so it was easier for me i mean i knew that i wanted an angry dan Loeb letter yeah of course And i knew that that was a good one and it was way easier for me to like to write about that company than like icpt like or something where like i didn't know the company
0: at all So just to take one more opportunity before we dive into star gas to highlight because lobe the Loeb letters are just awesome so Lo- Loeb writes um in that same 13d Um, to seven to Eric seven, the CEO. How is it possible that you selected your elderly 78 year old mom to serve on the company's board of directors and as a full-time employee providing employee and unit holder services? We further wonder under what theory of corporate governance does one's mom sit on a company board? Should you be found derelict in the performance of your executive duties, as we believe is the case, we do not believe your mom is the right person to fire you from your job. And I love how he keeps saying mom instead of mother. It's <laughs> just <is> so condescending. <laughs> so anyway, so obviously you're not involved with StarGas when when uh, Loeb is fighting. Well, I was. Where were you?
1: Well, so my first job in the industry, I was at a distress fund. Mm. Like I started well during business school in 2002. And then in 2000. Either 04 or 05, my direct boss, uh, Greg Schrock, he was the director of research at that fund, and, and he and I launched a new fund called um, um, ARCLO, where I was the junior partner. We were funded by, uh, like, like um, or seated by a protege. And that was also distress fund. And, and I think at both HPV and at ARCLO, I had looked at the SGU bonds. And then at ARCLO, like, that was when all of this the Dan Loeb and the up, you know, will happen. And like, we looked, I think that we own both the bonds and the stock like a little bit. And um, so I, you know, will follow that whole thing. I remember we talked like to Loeb and there were, he had a lot more stories like off the record, <laughs> like, Can only imagine. like, you know, that like we're even harsher about Eric seven. And so I like had been following it. And then when we launched a uh, Bandera it was among our first positions. Was, I mean, you know, one thing that you see a lot with uh, special situations is you do see kind of investor fatigue, you know. So with StarGas, they did a restructuring, like they equitized a lot of bonds. So there were, you know, kind of two dynamics. A, the event had happened. Well, there were a bunch of dynamics. I mean, like another one was like the event had loudly and publicly happened.
0: Just describe that event kind of a Oh,
1: well. So, SGU in the old days was a basic, it was run by an investment banker and was like a dividend uh, paying security. It was an MLP. It was, it traded on yield. Like the stock was like, you know, 20 to 25 bucks a share, even though, like, you know, they were kind of, well, ran these hard businesses, including like this heating oil business. Like, they ran into trouble. They made some, like, essentially, like, directional bets on the price of oil and they blew up. With this guy, you know, well, um, Eric uh, Seven in charge, they sold their propane business because it was an MLP. Like they passed on a a ten dollar per share taxable gain hmm. to their uh, shareholders at almost the, like the same time as announcing that they might have to file for bankruptcy. So hey, here's your stock. You're about Jesus. to lose everything. By the way, <laughs> here's a $10 like day. you owe yeah, well, ten bucks per share gain. <laughs> You know, so so Dan Loeb got involved, you know, called for his ouster. They did this whole restructuring. It was all very well, ugly and public. When they did the restructuring, you know, that was a controversial thing too because the board uh, took what, you know, on the surface looked like the less good deal. There was a Soros-backed deal that looked like the better uh, deal for shareholders in the short term, but they went with the more reputable management team. So they you know, went with this uh, Yorktown partners, a private equity firm who now controls SGU, had sold the old SGU, like a heating oil company in 2000. So it was the, it was, you know, their uh, management team that came back in to recapitalize it. So you had all of that happen. You had like the new management team, like you had a lot of the the equity in the hands of these old bondholders. you know, which, you know, creates a dynamic. And then you had that whole Dan Loeb noise where it got lots of attention. And when all of that will died away, you're left with a stock where people are like oh yeah SGU I've heard of that and people don't they tend to underfollow these things that have been in the public eye mm. and also I think a part of it being in the public eye and of a lot of of blowups in the heating all space you know so at the same time that SGU blew up this other company blew up called heating all partners like that business got dismissed as a crappy business when in reality it's a surprisingly good um, high return business. And so, you know, we, you know, kind of saw this like this excellent, you know, management team buying into these assets. They're really good capital allocators. Mm. They're like a good private equity firm. So, it all kind of, you know, lined up right and then 08 and 09 happened too. Like and then also like in 07 like the huge increase like in oil prices, which is bad for their business. And so it was a situation where lots of bad things were happening in a fatigued a stock and then you add these, like, real bad, well, macro pressures. But yet, underlying it all, you add a good change in management and good governance and, you know, good oversight. So it, a setup, great. And, like, ultimately, it still isn't as respected as it should be, which is the reason that we, you know, will still own tons of it. Like, we've owned it for a very long time, and I and I, and I still feel like it's extremely undervalued.
0: So, value investing is—I always say—like a nice way of saying very pessimistic outlook. Um, yeah.
1: And look, this is like the heating oil business is secular decline, declining, right? and it has been like for decades. But uh, Yorktown, like these guys that control uh, Star Gas, you know, like they launched a heating oil business in nineteen eighty-one that they sold to Star Gas in two thousand. The same dynamic was happening over that period, you know, with a little bit of differences in the relative price of natural gas to oil, but. Like it was a declining, you know, doomed business. And like, and they returned, with something like, you know, 65X, like in that period. And they know what they're doing. So, like, the main thing there is they perpetually, like, are valued, like, as this, you know, well, terrible commodity business when they're kind of not. I mean, it's not a great business, but, but you can earn an outsized return.
0: What do you think? I mean, how long, so how long have you owned it? How, I guess, how long has it been either your number one or, or top position? Or, uh, probably
1: positions. seven, eight years.
0: So, is there a catalyst that would cause the market's perception to change? Do you think?
1: I would have thought, with the low interest rates, you know, them paying a dividend, you know, I mean, you know, they pay kind of the, the lowest uh, dividend that they feel they can pay to keep the shareholders um, happy, but they prefer to retain the cash, which mm-hmm. I agree with. Yeah, like for acquisitions and buybacks. But it yields, well, 5%. I mean, I would have thought at some point that it would, you know, kind of go back to trading on yield. And, look, I mean, you know, well, markets are optimistic. And in history, there have been times that people have valued heating um, heating oil companies like propane companies, like, you know, with a lot of optimism. So, I mean I, I mean, I would have thought, like, at some point that that would have happened. And then, you know, we had two years in a row of these, like, abnormally cold winters where they just made gobs and gobs of money mm. – and I would have thought that, like, the, the, the valuation, you know, would have improved more than it did.
0: But, what, uh, when you say they're good capital allocators, that mm-hmm. kind of perked my ears up. I think that that is one of the more interesting ways of evaluating a business or certainly a management team. Um, and you mentioned both acquisitions and buybacks. So when you say good allocators, what do you, what do you mean by that? And, and is that allocation piece or that allocation skill – a key mm-hmm. part of what you look for when when screening for for new investments or, or at least, you know, want to see continued good allocation from yeah. your from your existing investments.
1: I mean honestly, like you know, when I look at stocks, like I'm more looking like for bad allocation mm. as a thing to avoid. Great capital allocation is so rare and it can be hard to predict in the future that it's not the driving thing that I'm trying to identify, even though it's hugely important. Like, it's more like I'm trying to avoid the disasters with bad allocation. Uh, with us, Like, with StarGas, yeah, it's like they're extremely disciplined and good on the acquisition front, which is hard to be in a, in a declining industry where you're the biggest player. So, like, among the more annoying things that, is, that has happened to us with uh, Star Gas is, like, there were two or three great assets that popped up for sale in the industry that got gobbled up by these Canadian well, propane companies that, you know, like we're playing the dividend game with their investors and, you know, they needed to grow and they, you know, will grossly like, you know, overpaid for those assets. You know, the new star gas has been great. Like they've gotten up like a bunch of good acquisitions done, but they don't overpay for the bad ones. And then they are really opportunistic on, you know, debt and share repurchases. So in the financial crisis, they've, Like they bought back like a lot of their bonds at a huge discount, Uh, you know. Since we've owned the stock, they bought back about you know 25 percent of the shares, like at opportunistic times, and so like they really are good on the capital front, which is key for a declining you know cash generating business.
0: Do you have a broader opinion on buybacks? It's one of the uh, we'll call it quant factors that that I find Mm -hmm. most interesting, and and the empirical evidence suggests that companies that buy back as you say, gobs of their shares, especially ones that do it at, at cheaper relative prices, you know, low PEs, low prices, sales, et cetera, have pretty significantly outperformed the market mm-hmm. um, over the longer term. Now, we're in a period now of, you know, certainly 2015 and, and thus far in 2016 when these high buyback firms have have lagged pretty considerably. But longer term, it's been a pretty effective signal or factor to look yeah. for in companies um, so do you think that, and I guess I'll frame the question also by saying that most coverage of buybacks is pejorative or negative? Mm-hmm. Um, it, there seems to be this this kind of narrative that that's, it's manipulative, it's self-serving, uh, it's a way of boosting EPS, hitting targets, and that instead that cash should be invested for growth. Mm-hmm. Um, so where do you stand on kind of buybacks more broadly and no, knowing yeah. that it's been a good thing for StarGas? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, those are all great points. And like, it really is the area of corporate governance that's probably the least understood. Like, in every board I've been on, in lots of dealings with management teams, they really don't understand buybacks. Um, I vividly remember I was in a meeting with Popeyes, you know, billion-dollar company, great company, discussing a buyback. And, and you know, I was kind of pushing them. They had been essentially badgered into doing buybacks by their shareholders, and and um, I was pushing the CFO just, you know, trying to figure out how he, he thought about it. And so we're trying to kind of evaluate, would he be opportunistic? Would he we'll turn it up or down depending on the market price? And he was like, well, you really want to put these things, you know, get them in the front, like the beginning of the year. So it, you know, will has the biggest effect on your, you know, diluted uh, share count for your annual earnings. And it was like, It's like the worst thing that you want to hear as an investor. It's like doesn't have anything to do with long-term intrinsic value and so they're so misunderstood and as you say like there there are lots of companies like that will kind of have them on autopilot so like to me it's like i really love to see it when you have these like opportunistic you know like aggressive buybacks and i don't know i mean like to me the the main issue is that boards often don't know how to value companies they don't know Uh, how to think about the value of their companies when they seek a guidance on valuation, they'll get a, like a banker report. Like that's a means to an end. So they don't really know a, even if they knew, you know, well, how buybacks worked, which they predominantly don't, they don't understand valuation like enough to do buybacks in the right way. So yeah, like it's another example of how with corporate governance, it's hard to have a best practice because with buybacks, like, you can see the best and the worst of performance. And there's, like, a good buyback, will, you know, creates a tremendous amount of value. A bad buyback directly destroys value. Burns money. And the shareholder base is ultimately, if you own the share, then you're going to be biased in favor of thinking it's undervalued and that a buyback is the right thing. So it's a real... It's a, like it's a hard issue to think about from a you know from a governance perspective.
0: That seems to be a new major tool in the toolkit for activists is agitating for buybacks. You know, Apple's yeah the most famous example.
1: Yeah, but I think that you did have a little bit of a of a one time period, like where companies are like are like are overcapitalized, interest rates had dropped precipitously, and the cost of borrowing was a, so low. And uh, CFOs were not quite as sophisticated on their like ability to borrow uh, cheaply, and so I think a lot of that of like the low hanging fruit there is gone. And that was a powerful tool that I think you know was good like for shareholders like when these like overcapitalized companies you know were borrowed to buy back uh, shares uh, cheaply. But now it's less clear, and and I don't think it's just a tool that's always going to be there. I mean, you know, like with buybacks. If, like if you look at the math on buybacks like if you're only buying back a small percentage of the float it's really hard to move the needle like you have to buy back a lot and you have to like to to buy it back at a pretty you know big discount like to really drive value so I don't know I mean they're like like our two approaches there like like are like people that think well there's a tax advantage if you buy back at fair value over time as if it's a dividend then you add value there too that is true but like to me what You know, gets me excited as an investor is a board that understands the value of their company, and you see that you know will manifest through aggressive buybacks.
0: It's interesting that I, you know, all the all the work I've done on buybacks, and it's been a kind of key area of focus in my research, has more or less empirically uh, confirmed what you're saying, which is the best way to um, let's say qualify a buyback program is sort of this lumpiness. This relationship to big discounts mm-hmm. um, and these kind of high conviction bets that companies make, and I once separated it into what I call lower conviction, which was five percent or less of shares in a one-year period,
1: mm-hmm. and high
0: conviction or or highest, which is you know <laughs> five or ten percent plus of shares, and sometimes you see a you know a fifteen or a twenty percent mm-hmm. uh, massive massive bet, and what you find is a couple interesting things where there's a correlation between the conviction level the percentage of shares being repurchased and the relative valuation so higher conviction on average the share prices are are trading at cheaper or bigger discounts
1: yeah that's interesting
0: and then the second thing maybe more you know useful for for active investors is that the forward returns of mm-hmm. those stocks are considerably higher so you know you get large stocks at you know call it 10% return since 1982 when share buybacks became you know really popular the low conviction group outperforms by say one percent a year, a little bit, mm-hmm. um, but but not hugely significant, and it's it's, it's varied. Um, and then that high conviction group outperforms by about four percent a year. Huh. So it's a it's a big gap, and there does seem to be. And of course, there's there's plenty of examples even within that high conviction group of value destroying sure. buybacks. Um, but from an empirical standpoint, it, it does seem to be true that That's the lumpier higher conviction bigger buybacks that aren't just like a dividend proxy where it's 1% or 2% of shares every year um, or, or, or timed at the beginning of the year <laughs> with, with diluted EPS in mind. Um, yeah, do I, mean, it seems,
1: I mean, it seems intuitively true to me. It, it'll be interesting to see if we get a, a sustained bear market, you know, what the data what looks like. Because it's also you just have had a market that has gone up and, you know, people were buying back shares. But to me, like if I see, you know, buybacks with a brain behind them, Usually they're good, you know, and at times they're bad if the board's just wrong and delusional, like which happens.
0: So we we talked a little bit about Popeyes. I'd like like to move to uh, the last position we'll talk about before getting to some closing questions, which is Tandy Leather. Um, And what I'm really most fascinated about about Tandy Leather, first of all, I I intentionally didn't really look into their business because I kind of wanted to hear it from you. It's a weird business. But but the most (laughs) – the number that jumped off the page is not – the weight of Tandy Leather in your portfolio, but the percentage of shares outstanding that you own of the business. Yeah. So, I, I are you the largest shareholder? Yeah, you are. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, so we own about thirty uh, percent. Which this is also that's like a real, you know, we'll hornet's nest with like affiliation rules, all that kind of stuff. And I'm on the board, so I have to be careful like about uh, what I can say about it. But you know, the main thing with uh, Tandy is it's a really good niche business. So they're a retail company that sells uh, leather and tools to leather crafters. So for people who who make things with uh, leather, they have like a fanatical customer base, you know? So they can have their stores in well, very low rent areas and the customers will come to them and and I bought it, you know, like it's it's what kind of a classic, you know, well microcap uh, story these well tiny uh, companies like their valuations get you know will heavily um influenced by the activities of the large uh, shareholders and liquidity. so in two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine, there was a sixteen percent uh, shareholder like the Wellington uh, group. I don't know why a company like that would own sixteen percent of like of Tandy leather, but
0: they're a big micro cap player, I think oh really 10, yeah,
1: but they're like a, I mean like they're big funds oh yeah sure know, they have big funds, but like so we basically bought a big hunk of our position at at probably like a thirty or forty million dollar valuation for a company with no debt and excess cash that, at the time, was probably doing like eight million of operating income, and you know did like you know well twelve million like last year or the year before, and um, and then we bought another huge uh, chunk from a retiring CEO to bring us up to like to basically the thirty percent where we are now. So I was just a real fan of the quality of their business, and usually, like with our positions, again, like as we talked about with a Stargas, like with Popeyes, it's a lot like the Stargas story. It was a special situation. They were a conglomerate. They basically liquidated. They went a year with no CEO. They got an excellent CEO. You know, people were tired of the name, and then the financial crisis hit, and so you had a year of great performance, but well, during the financial crisis with a new CEO. It had a, a special situation narrative. With Tandy, it was just like a really good business where you had, like for some reason, a shareholder that, you know, wanted to sell at all costs, hmm. like, like at any price. And, you know, we stepped up with the bid.
0: It strikes me that, you know, when you think about, obviously, hyper-liquid large-cap markets that, that dominate stated equity returns, you know, everyone talks about the S&P 500, that maybe the future of we'll call it active management i want to get your opinion on on the active passive debate in a minute um but maybe the future of active is is more in situations like this where you're sacrificing liquidity obviously Mm -hmm. um for a longer term view on a good operating business that you know obviously tandy leather means nothing to almost every single stockholder out there (coughs) uh but but is a meaningful part of your fund do you think that that's true do you think that you know, the real opportunity is going to be in smaller cap, less liquid, longer horizon type investments like this.
1: No, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm agnostic, like on that front. I mean, I'm agnostic about a lot of things, but yeah, look, I think there's a dynamic to micro caps and the liquidity problems and, and like the issue, like of ultimately, like a lot of times, like, like you're at an information, you know, disadvantage from the seller. It's a lot like distressed investing with like your Buying a block of distressed bonds, like from someone that knows a lot, there, like, are all these aspects of a microcap like investment that would make it hard to have a quantitative or like an like an indexing uh, strategy. So I think there, like, will always be room for like active, you know, managers in tiny tiny companies. To your question of, so there's a second, you know, question like implicit in yours, which is. With this, you know, we'll fund and and indexing and the mega caps, you know, will we hit a point where the quality of it, like an individual fund managers will judgment in general, like they're not going to be good enough to compete? I think it's just a completely different question. And um, it's a question about, you know, I mean, essentially, you know, judgment or what kind of like access to information, but but i don't know and i just assume like like the market is prone to bad misjudgments and i do think there's a place for concentrated big cap investors too hmm. and so i think there will continue to be and look i mean i think it's it's hard to outperform and i think over time there will probably be you know compression on fees but i think there's a place for like active managers across the board and i mean i kind of wonder as you know quantitative and in, like investing grows will that help uh, like a like a small pocket of active investors like to me like the more problematic issue with the growth of algorithmic you know will hedge fund investing in the mega caps is i think that like we're seeing this real imbalance in access to information there too where you have the really big funds are now will have the resources and the world has evolved in this way, where they have access to more well, real-time information than even the companies do, and so they're buying all of this, you know, well, you know, real-time data on consumer habits, mm-hmm. which I assume, you know, will, will skirt the gray areas of securities law, but is pretty fascinating. So, like, I've thought like a lot about that, and and the impact that that'll have in, in the
0: long term. I've seen like set you know satellite imagery for for mall parking lots that and, kind of stuff, yeah. You know, crazy unstructured data.
1: I mean, I get like an email like I mean every day from like oh, we have a few big cap positions, so like we own like you know Google or Chipotle, and I think that like will puts us like on the radar of these well firms that are like, hey, we have all this well value added research mm-hmm. on how Chipotle's doing you know this week or whatever. Yeah. So there's this whole industry of that stuff.
0: It's kind of like Graham looking through the uh, yeah, totally. you know, the ICC at special information, yeah. um, and I I think the question now is the problem we face now as active investors is how in the world to separate signal from the noise because yeah. surely most of that information is completely useless.
1: Well, I mean, I mean, and I think that's a good thing for long term investors. I mean, I mean, ultimately, is like that's I mean, that's not going to hurt them, right? There, like, are people out there that. To know what the next quarter is going to look
0: like. Two quick questions on on your business. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. curious. One, if you benchmark yourself, and, and if so, against what? And and two, maybe talk a little bit about your investors because I can tell you know having talked to you before this conversation, but also through this conversation and based on your portfolio that you've got a high conviction long term investing strategy here. Yeah, that's not all your money. You've got investors, mm-hmm. and so the quality of those investors. I'm sure matters. So maybe maybe you could touch on that.
1: Sure. Yeah, you know, we've been really, really extraordinarily lucky in that a large percentage of of our current investor base, and they were only a fraction of our beginning investor base, but they have come to dominate it in terms of assets, are collection of high frequency traders. Hmm. So they're all high net worth individuals, they're all like they tend to be young and and sophisticated and interested in markets. And we've been well very uh, you know well fortunate that that over the life of our fund which will coincide with you know 07 08 09 which were you know banner years in in that industry that you know they grew at a period where it really helped us to have access to capital so we've been really really lucky on that front i knew lots of uh, fund managers in 08 and 09 who had to close shop who were doing just as well i mean you know, like my old boss at Arclo, Greg Schrock, who who works here now. He's he's the one at the end of the office. I mean, he was a big uh, subprime short. He was up like eighty percent in '07, up like over ten percent in you know in '08, and then he was up in '09, but just a little bit. And he basically like lost his seed investor, and had to fold up shop. So we've been really fortunate to have like a great um, investor base, like that understands what we do and that like like allows us to invest in the way that we know how to invest. And so when you think about, you know, benchmarking, like we're not out there marketing, right. Like to new funds, we're not out there. we trying to get big institutions. Like, like when our a clients invest in us, I think of them as choosing us over the S and P 500 index fund. Right. So that's our competition. Yeah. And I feel like not only is that hard to outperform in terms of its return, It's a lot more tax-efficient. It's, like, way easier from an administrative, you know, standpoint. So, I mean, I think that, like, we have a high bar to live up to. Like, we will sometimes have these investments where we're investing in, like, some kind of a liquidating trust where it's a tax disaster and, like, we'll get our K-1 in September. And, like, and so, like, we really are an administrative will burden on our investors. So they're choosing us, and, like, and I feel like to make it a worthwhile investment, it's the S&P 500, and it's not just that it performs well. It's, like, easy for these guys to not have to deal with the K-1s and, like, the liquidity and all that stuff. So, yeah, like, we never really, like, compare ourselves to, like, the value indices or the Russell or... I don't know. I mean, I guess that, like, we have. Yeah. I mean, and there are times when, like, you know, we obviously are going to be more correlated to the Russell. Mm. So like in periods where like we, you know, we really suck, like, you know, we, you know, we might say, well, like the Russell sucked. Yeah. And
0: we're value value based. You know, that
1: could partially explain it. But, right. But, you know, but, you know, but they know that like we have 10 to 15 positions and that in any given year that it will be, you know, will driven by these, you know, um, idiosyncratic things
0: yeah how often do you have or, or maybe the most recent time that you've made a major portfolio change which is, i'm assuming your turnover is very low
1: yeah we um our biggest portfolio like we sold like we used to own a, a general motors and we sold mm-hmm. it so yeah in the last three years all of our big changes have been sales yeah yeah <laughs> we really haven't bought a new core position in like in a long time
0: is that value driven is, it, is it a lack of cheap opportunities
1: I think so. I, I mean, I hope so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I view it as its lack of a, of a productivity on our part, but hopefully <laughs> the reason that is the case is because there's not compelling ideas out there.
0: So I'm going to close with a few kind of fun, quick questions. Sure. Um, the first of which is, what is the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you professionally?
1: Definitely Arthur Levitt got me into Columbia Business School. So I applied there. like i did the interview after i got in i think it was like the first week of school the dean of i think it was the dean of admissions called me into her office and and basically explained like we wouldn't have let you in except like for arthur um which is like which in hindsight like you know i mean i think well her telling me was i mean i'm glad that she told me like i'm like i'm like i'm glad i knew it did you know will motivate me like i suppose like to make me resent them i was you know like and i'm incredibly grateful that they did it because you know well, going to that school has been extraordinarily good to me but then at the same time there's a part of me that like that's like you know they should be taking well more people like me right i mean i had the aptitude to go there by a, like a wide margin i just well, didn't have the
0: the resume like the guess. business background yeah.
1: and so like a like a part of me is like well you know like they should take well, more people like me you know but um but yeah, like without him, like I wouldn't, like have gotten in there. I mean, you know, at the same time that I applied to Columbia, I got rejected by NYU, and um, you know, those were the two schools I applied to. So it was a, it was you know, real proof that that Arthur you know did get me in.
0: You mentioned that at Columbia um, in Greenblatt's class, you felt like you just got some of the stuff faster than other people. So maybe this is the answer to the question. But I'm curious that if you could isolate one skill or, or skill set um, that you feel you're just better you have more aptitude that that drives a lot of your advantage what would it be
1: I don't know I mean if I have a skill set that is above average it's above like like average for the general population probably not like above average for um right the paradox you know, of skill hedge that, fund managers, that, that you know? talks about yeah I mean I think I'm good at big picture thinking I think I'm a good writer like I think I'm a good you know, written communicator. I think those are things that like have helped me professionally, but I'm not sure that they make, like if we're talking about above average in the peer group, I think, I think like I'm pretty, you know, average in the peer group.
0: Given that we, uh, we first met each other because of your book and Mm -hmm. we're both, I think pretty voracious readers or or at least Mm -hmm. have loved books throughout our lives and both writers as well every one of these kind of podcasts has the interviewer ask people for a book recommendation so I'm going to try to do it a little bit differently just to keep it more interesting not so much just a a one book recommendation but if you somehow had the power to force Mm -hmm. everybody in the world (laughs) uh, to read one book what would it be?
1: Interesting I mean so like I have thought about this some and I think yeah I mean like I think the big issue is you know like I'm 41 years old You know, when you're 41, like, every book is a baby step, right? (laughs) Like, there's no one book that you can read when you're 40 years old that, like, is going to have a profound influence, I think. I just think, like, it all, you know, will feeds like, the way that you see the world in a positive way. But, I mean, I read um, Ayn Rand in, like, the 10th grade, and it had a profound impact on me even though like within three years, I had completely like rejected everything that she said. It was like, you are just like at that age that books have a profound impact. Mm. So like, I think the way that like, that I read now is well, very different from like in high school. Like you're like this sponge. You know, yeah. Well sponge and you know so little Yeah. <laughs> like that. Everything like affects you in a huge way. So all of those books, all of like the books, like, like, that, like, have a huge impact on the way that you see the world, like, you have to, like, to, like, to read at that age, so, I don't know, I, I mean, I love a lot of books, well, now, but they don't, like, but every book is just, you know, like, a, you know, like, a small change on you now, and it just, it depends on, like, on who you are, so, like, I don't really have an answer, um, in terms of business books, I guess, like, when people ask me, like, investing-wise, is that like, I do always, uh, push the the snowball mm. like i feel like a it's great book yeah and it's, it's weirdly um you know well under the radar even among the buffett devotees yeah and i think that book is more valuable than like i think uh, like a like a, like a young in, like investor coming up now will will get more from the snowball than from the intelligent investor or security
0: analysis or Ka- kind of like a lot of uh, aspects of your story that we've heard today, I think there's huge value in the snowball in just understanding the stages and hardships and hard work and you know strokes of good luck and all the things that go into what you know looking back seems like an inevitably great career. Yeah, um, it's it's very hard to to be successful as a as a fund manager, um, and a lot has to go right. And I think snowball, I think snowball is probably the best example of understanding that journey. Yeah. Um, yeah, really I mean, well.
1: I mean, I think it's a significant achievement, and I think it does exactly what Buffett, you know, wanted the book to do, and I think it's a real shame that he's divorced himself from it because um, I go to the Berkshire meeting every year, but, but this year was the first year that I did the book circuit. Mm. So I went to all these book events, and the snowball was invisible from them. And when I talk to young people, like, a lot of them have read The Lowenstein and, like, and not The Snowball. and Like, The Lowenstein book is good, but, like, to me, it's completely unnecessary, especially if you read The Snowball. And The Snowball just has incredible access, and it's just um, – it gives you such a better feel, f- like, for how much, of, like, of an anomaly, hmm. you know, Buffett is. But also for, like, for how he thinks and what drives him. it's a, It's a shame that it's not, like – the profile book at the meeting every year. It should be.
0: Last question. If you could hear anybody else interviewed like this, uh-huh. who would it be? That's a good question.
1: I mean, you know, like I'm always uh, fascinated by people who are productive but have like diverse interests, mm. you yeah. know? So like I really like this guy, uh, Tyler Cohen. Mm. Like um, he blurred my book, but he's interested like in lots of different uh, the marginal, stuff. Is that the
0: Marginal Revolution guy? The yeah. guy George Mason? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know great, how, yeah,
1: yeah, I don't know how he does it. I mean, yeah. you know, well, how does he have time? I mean, how does he organize his day to, to cover that much ground? I mean, yeah, like I think that ultimately, and I think like a lot of, of uh, fund managers, like, like, like are kind of interesting people. I mm-hmm. think Klarman, uh Cliff Asnes, well, guys like that, like they're well-rounded and and sophisticated thinkers. Like, I mean, I think ultimately when you get, you know, writers <laughs> or, you know, well people who like, you might have a little bit of a more narrow interest, like, like you might learn you know less from guys like that than like from people like that you know
0: will really you know cover A broader lots of ground. Interests. yeah. Interesting. Great. Well thanks so much, Jeff, for doing this. Cool. Uh, this thanks for a, you know, my for first me. recording and it's been a blast. So I appreciate it. Great. Well thank you. Hey everyone, Patrick here again. To find more episodes of Invest Like the Best, go to investorfieldguide.com forward slash podcast. If you're a book lover, you can also sign up for my book club at InvestorFieldGuide.com forward slash book club. After you sign up, you'll receive a full investor curriculum right away and then three to four suggestions of new books every month. You can also follow me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Oshag, O-S-H-A-G. If you enjoy the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes, which will help more people discover Invest Like the Best. Thanks so much for listening.